0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Look Up Podcast. I'm Jake.
1: And I'm Patricia, and we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in May in this cosmic diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it's important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you are using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode.
0: The last day of April brought with it a new moon. So the start of May is the best time to view fainter deep sky objects like nebulae and galaxies. The globular cluster M5 is ideally placed at this time of year and will be visible through a pair of binoculars. A globular cluster is a collection of stars tightly bound by gravity and M5 contains anywhere between 100 and 500,000 stars. It sits around 25,000 light-years away from us, forming part of a halo around the centre of our galaxy. It will be visible throughout the month, becoming visible after sunset in the eastern sky, just to the right of the constellation of Serpens, the snake held by the constellation of Fucus, which borders it. The sun will rise before M5 sets, meaning that it will be up all night long.
1: When it comes to viewing astronomical events, this month is one of late nights and early starts. The 6th of May will see the peak of the Eta akrid meteor shower, with 40 metres power emanating from the constellation of Aquarius. The only catch is that the shower will only be visible from the UK between around 2.30 and 4.30 a.m., with the radiant point of the shower rising from the eastern horizon at 2.37 and dawn breaking just over two hours later at 4.42. The meteors of this shower originate from the material left behind by none other than Halley's comet, the famous short-period comet discovered by the second astronomer royal Edmund Halley.
0: The 16th of May will present us with a total lunar eclipse. This occurs when the full moon moves into the Earth's shadow meaning that the only sunlight that can reach the moon is the red light that is unaffected by the Earth's atmosphere as it passes through, unlike blue light which is easily scattered by the gases in the air. As a result, during a total lunar eclipse, the moon appears to turn an eerie shade of red. These events are also sometimes known as blood moons. This lunar eclipse is definitely one for the late-nighters and the early starters, since it will begin around 3.30am on the 16th, reaching its totality one hour later at 4.30, before setting below the horizon just after 5 a.m. From London, the Moon will never be higher than 5 degrees above the horizon during totality, so be sure to find a clear southwestern horizon if you're planning to view this eclipse of our mighty Moon.
1: At the beginning or the end of the months when the Moon is least full, keep an eye out for M51, better known as the Whirlpool Galaxy. It's a majestic spiral galaxy with long, winding spiral arms looking at the observer almost perfectly face-on. Its well-defined shape and structure has earned it the title of a grand design spiral. At its outermost tips it's another galaxy, a small, yellowish structure called NGC 5195. These two galaxies can be viewed through a small telescope if the viewing conditions are good find them at the tip of the tail of Ursa Major, the constellation of the Great Bear. M51 sits beside the bright star at the tip of the tail,
0: Alcade. For those in the Southern Hemisphere, last month we recommended taking a look at the Jewel Box, an open star cluster in the constellation of Crux. This month, why not take a closer look at a patch of sky just beneath the Jewel Box after 9pm local time? You won't be able to see much at all, and that's the point. This patch of sky contains the coal Coalsack Nebula, a dark nebula with molecular clouds so dense that it blocks the light of anything behind it from reaching the Earth. It is the most prominent dark nebula in our skies, and appears as a patch of sky that is distinctly darker than the sky around it. No stars, no light, just pure darkness. It will be visible throughout May, so do keep a lookout for it on a clear night.
1: If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our Night Sky Highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. <music> Welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. As our regular listeners know, this is the part where Jake and I get to talk about an astronomy or space exploration story that's come out in the past month. We talk about it. And then of course, the most important part of it, Jake, is the Twitter battle. I mean, as much as we love talking about these stories, it really is about that Twitter battle, isn't it?
0: That's it. It's all about the glory.
1: It it really is. And um, I'm sure you must be curious, Jake, as to the results of your first Twitter battle against myself. So shall we dive in and uh, reveal the results or, or wait until we get to the end of this podcast?
0: I'm, I'm anxious to know it now because, of course, I have held off finding out the results until this moment. So I'm quite keen to know.
1: You're quite keen to know. Okay. Well, uh, just a reminder to everyone about what we spoke about. So Jake, you spoke about the James Webb Space Telescope's first image. And I spoke about Eugene Parker, sort of the founder of heliophysics. So I can reveal that we had a good number of votes on this Twitter poll, but it went one sided very quickly because there was one story that seemed to resonate with people and I can reveal that with. 81 percent of the votes the winning story was yours jake well (gasps) done on that a brilliant story of course james's Space telescope first image who is going to be able to compete against that i know it was
0: well yes well thank you very much obviously it's the story that wins rather than me in many ways uh well maybe it is me
1: (laughs) take it jake take it because i mean who knows what might happen today We've That's true. Got but two uh, brand new stories, you
0: yeah. know? Yeah. 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 So, um, of course. Yeah. Really good. Uh, not to take away from the legacy of Eugene Parker, obviously, absolute legend, but that uh, James Webb first image was pretty groundbreaking.
1: It was. And of course, um, if people keeping up to date with James Webb, there's a whole bunch of calibration going on at the moment. And I think one of the instruments is now being cooled down to its operating temperature, which is fairly cold as one can imagine. Um, but it's good news. So everything is looking good so far with James Webb. So of course, expect the James Webb Space Telescope to feature in some of our future stories as well. But speaking of stories, Jake, why don't you kick off this month's Cosmic News? What have you chosen for us this month?
0: So this month, I have chosen the story about NASA's Hubble Space Telescope revealing or confirming just last month that a comet or a believed comet that was uh, imaged all the way back in 2014 is in fact the largest ever comet discovered. Uh, So it's a big piece of news. Quite literally, Uh... it's big news
1: is is this something where we need to start preparing for an eventual impact or are we okay jake
0: (laughs) on this occasion luckily we are going to be okay though of course massive comet heading this way if anyone's seen don't look up it is quite reminiscent of that i was
1: just thinking about that
0: (laughs) but luckily this one uh it is heading into the solar system it's currently in the solar system actually but it's going to get about as close as Saturn, about 1.5 billion kilometers away from the sun or thereabouts. And then it's going to head off out of the solar system again. So it's not actually a risk to us, which means we can talk about it in a optimistic way. Yay! But uh, for the uninitiated, obviously we should probably talk about what comets actually are. We often call them dirty snowballs, Uh, the dirty snowballs of space. They're basically giant balls of ice and rock, uh, sometimes containing frozen gases like carbon monoxide, ammonia, CO2, and things like that. And they're comprised of a main body, which we call a nucleus of the comet. And if they pass close enough to the sun or the, the star that they're orbiting, all of that frozen material begins to sublimate. So it begins to turn into a gas and it can create these tails that are millions of kilometers long. So if anyone saw a comet NEOWISE all the way back in 2020, uh, it had this beautiful long tail coming out of the back of it. And so that's basically what comets are, giant icy snowballs with giant tails coming out of them when they get close enough to the sun and get heated up quite a bit. But this particular comet in question was first imaged all the way back in 2014 by the Dark Energy Survey, Uh, which was actually measuring the expansion of the universe and trying to figure out the properties of dark energy and this comet.
1: Isn't that amazing, Jake, how this often happens quite a lot in astronomy when you set off to do one thing and then just make discoveries in other things along, along the way?
0: yeah well and this went completely undetected as well at the time just largest comet that we've ever discovered just hovering around in the background of this survey trying to measure the expansion of the universe so yeah again it's one of those times where lots of discoveries can be made completely unknowingly in the background of something else a bit like that james webb story where there were lots of galaxies in the background of that image of a star
1: Oh, nice little segue. I was about to try the same (laughs) thing about um, uh, Eugene Parker. remember the uh, little bit of measuring the solar wind whilst Mariner was on its way to Venus. But, you know, you got in there first, That's right.
0: so. (laughs) (laughs) So it was first imaged all the way back 2014 in this dark energy survey. And then a few years later, along come astronomers Pedro Bernardinelli and Gary Bernstein, who decided to search through the archive images from this particular survey uh, using an algorithm, and they were actually looking for trans-Neptunian objects. So they were looking for sort of celestial bodies beyond the orbit of Neptune. They were just looking around in the background of these images, and they trawled through all of the data from 2014 to 2018. So they looked through four years' worth of images, And then they ended up finding 42 images that contained this object. And they could see that it was heading towards the solar system. And at the time it was about 29 astronomical units away. So it was just inside the orbit of Neptune. So it had just entered the solar system at the time. And by looking at all these images, they could see that its trajectory implied that it came from the Oort cloud, this giant shell of ice that surrounds the solar system. And that suggested to them that it was probably a comet. Uh, But at the time, they didn't know for sure. And looking at its relatively high brightness in all of the images, they suggested that it was probably pretty big. It was probably over 100 kilometers in size. And that sparked a lot of excitement, I'm sure. That is absolutely huge. The uh, largest comet at the time that was known of was called Comet 2002 VQ-94. Not very catchy of a name but that was just under 100 kilometers in diameter. So that was pretty big. And then when we think about famous comets, things like Halley's Comet, that was only about seven kilometers across. So less than a 10th of the size. So this one yeah. is massive.
1: The, it, is, it is big. It's a big comet.
0: So, then you, so Bernardinelli and Bernstein have got these images. They think, okay, here's a massive object, might be a comet, possibly 100 kilometers in size. And then we flash forward all the way to 2021, where the discovery is announced to the public. And understandably, it causes quite a stir in the scientific community. And uh, as you can imagine, people were pretty excited about this. At the time, it was given a designation as a minor planet, since it wasn't confirmed that it was a comet yet, and we just weren't quite sure what it was. And this led many other astronomers to make observations of their own, trying to photograph it or to dredge back through their own observations from the past to see if they can spot it hanging around in the background of any of their images. Yes. And there are a lot of what we call pre-coveries, finding objects in the background of an image before its discovery. So a lot of pre-coveries. And one particular set of images found this particular object hanging around all the way back in 2010, when it was 34 astronomical units away. So it was outside of the solar system at that point.
1: Jeez, okay, so that that's amazing to think of. I mean, but it's it's, it's precisely the point that you raise: is that there are loads of objects out there that we don't know about. And then when you find something and then go back through, you know, these archives and all this data, then all of a sudden you'll spot something because you weren't necessarily looking for it. And especially the further out it is, it gets really difficult to see things out at that distance. So, I mean, what you said was, what, 30-odd? It was in 30-odd astronomical units it was back then in Mm -hmm. 2010. So, yeah, that's that's some way away from us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And these pre-coveries are actually really important in astronomy. Yeah, looking back to see, wait a minute, was there something in my pictures that uh, I didn't notice? And a lot of the times the answer is yes.
1: Yes. It turns (laughs) out.
0: Then, so that leads us all the way to early 2022, when finally the Hubble Space Telescope got involved and basically said, okay, everyone, stand aside. It's it's time for me to take a look. And then finally, fast forward to last month. So on the 12th of April, Hubble finally confirmed that this particular object, now known as Comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein, or nicknamed BB, is indeed a comet. (laughs) it is the largest comet ever discovered its nucleus is approximately 130 kilometers in diameter which means it is 14 times bigger than mount everest
1: and that is a useful comparison because it gives you an idea of just how big it is because it is very difficult i mean to conceptualize just how big that is when we're talking about stuff like that so that is quite a hefty nucleus for for a comet.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh concerningly big. I mean, we know that it's not coming anywhere near the earth. It won't come within about a billion kilometers of us, but there's something 14 times the size of Mount Everest just <laughs> flying through. It's quite alarming when you think about it, but also quite awe-inspiring. It also weighs 500 trillion tons if you wanted to know that as well. <laughs>
1: my brain is trying to process process that (laughs) because that's a very big number um so again as you say it's reassuring to know that that is not headed our way because something with that mass that size it could cause a bit of a problem if it smashed into something
0: yeah yeah we are we are safe luckily we can confirm that today don't worry if you're worried right now and you think oh okay, this may be the last podcast I ever listened to because very soon I will be crushed by about 14 Mount Everests. Don't worry, it's, we're fine. We're okay.
1: We're fine. We're, we're fine. Okay. Let's not talk about the others we don't know about.
0: But yeah, so... Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a very dark turn. Sorry, everyone. But Sorry, everyone. this is a this is point about why we have all of these uh, uh, sort of sky surveys taking place because there is so much out there that we don't know about.
0: Yeah, well, things like asteroid defense as well are things that are newly emerging fields. NASA, of course, launched a mission, the DART mission, the Double Asteroid Redirect Test, where they're hoping to redirect an asteroid in the hopes of being able to defend the Earth from (laughs) extinction-level events from asteroids and things like that. So one day there will be full defense for those things anyway. But luckily for now, this one's not coming for us. In 2031, it's going to reach its closest point to us. Uh, It'll be just beyond the orbit of Saturn. And then it's going to begin to head out of the solar system again. And it won't return for a few million years, actually. So this is the only time we're going to see it in our lifetimes. And then for many, many, many lifetimes after that.
1: Space is big.
0: Space is big is what we have learned. yeah, this one, unlike Comet Neowise, unlike Halley's Comet, the last time Halley's Comet came by, this one won't be visible to the naked eye. Uh, It would require quite a lot of specialist equipment to see it, of course, even in Hubble's images, which are very impressive images, it still looks quite small. So we can't expect really for us to be able to see it as it comes closer, but there we go. It's going to come as close as it will in about nine years, and then it's off again. But it's the biggest one ever discovered so far
1: i I, I like how you've ended it there with these so far yes uh because as we said there are probably many more out there but this is still a really i mean that's a fantastic story about this, this this discovery and also the fact that we're still able to use hubble you know to be able to image things like this so that's quite nice and i hope hubble keeps going for a few more years we certainly need it out there imaging those regions and these kinds of objects but Oh. yeah
0: it really shows as well just how diverse hubble is in its range of different functions how it's been able to photograph exoplanets and galaxies and nebulae and also comets and planets hubble really is uh, a jack of all trades a master of many trades i say
1: master, yeah. yeah yeah and we hope it keeps going for many years to come
0: there we go yeah absolutely but that is the story largest comet ever discovered so far I think we've discovered just over three thousand comets in total, but out in the Oort cloud, obviously there could potentially be a few trillion, as many yeah, as a trillion something like them. that.
1: Yeah. So
0: this is just the beginning, very much in the early stages of comet detection. But there we go.
1: And when the what's it? Is it the extremely large telescope? Is that what we've settled on now? When that obviously comes online, there's always yes. a potential to what that might discover out in in that region as well.
0: Absolutely. Yes. You never know. There could be comets photo bombing more James Webb images as well. You never know.
1: That is true. That is well. There we go. Something for everyone to look forward to. And as we say, not all comets and asteroids are out to get us. There are a lot out there. For the most part, they leave us alone. Yeah. So we're okay. We're okay. We're fine. We are absolutely fine. Oh, I'm a brilliant story, Jake. So for this month, I'm also sticking inside uh, the solar system. So we're both staying uh, close oh, yeah. to home this month. And as a throwback, I think it was in the uh, March podcast, you gave us all a summary about Perseverance Rovers' first year on Mars. And as part of that story, you included some audio of the winds of Mars. So the sounds that have been recorded by the rovers onboard microphones. And it turns out that the winds of Mars are not the only sounds that the has recorded so far. It's recorded the sound of the blades of the Ingenuity helicopter. So that's pretty cool. You can actually hear the helicopter flying around. It's even recorded the mechanical noises made by the rover as it's doing all of its tasks. And it's also made uh, recordings of the sounds of its laser as it zaps rocks on Mars. And I can confirm it doesn't go pew-pew. I know everyone (laughs) wants to believe that the the laser makes pew-pew sounds. It does not.
0: It, the, when you said that, the first thing I thought was, I want to know the sound of a laser that perseverance makes on Mars. I want to know what that sound is.
1: It's more of a clicking sound. So it's it's not pew-pew. I mean, I kind of feel like we would have all loved it if, if actually it had just had some kind of message on it that every time it fired its laser, it just said pew-pew, because that, that would have just made that exploration so much more entertaining, to be honest. Um, but, you know, we've recorded all of these wonderful sounds. And what this has actually allowed scientists to do, so one of the reasons why they're recording these sounds is um, just to sort of get an idea of what's happening on Mars, you can listen to the winds as the seasons change. You can also then maybe tell if something's not quite right on the rover, you might be able to start hearing a sound that you go, oh, it wasn't making that sound before. So there actually are some, you know, really useful things like that that come out from this. Well, what scientists have actually now been able to do is they've used the recordings of their sounds to measure the speed of sound on Mars, and they've discovered that Mars does not have a speed of sound. It has two speeds of sound.
0: Oh, is that depending on, uh, depending on where you are, how the altitude or the, the different air pressures, depending on where well, you go?
1: It's it uh, actually depends on the pitch of the sound so it's very interesting oh. so now i'm sure you've all heard the iconic tagline from alien which is in space no one can hear you scream and that's true uh, because sound requires a medium to travel through so air itself the air in your rooms is made up of many tiny particles and when sound waves travel through the air it causes us particles to vibrate and collide with each other which actually allows that sound wave to move through Now, the speed of sound in air depends on the type of gas that's present in the air and also on the temperature of the gas as well. So we knew for a fact that sound was going to travel at a different speed on Mars simply because the atmosphere on Mars is very different to the Earth's atmosphere. So on Mars, the atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide. So that's, that's quite a hefty chunk. Well, the earth's atmosphere is 78% nitrogen and 21% oxygen. So we know that sound travels more slowly through carbon dioxide gas because carbon dioxide molecules have more mass um, compared to you know, uh, nitrogen or oxygen. And that means that it actually takes a lot more energy to cause more massive molecules to vibrate. And what that means is that you... You know, they, they just don't really want to move around to be honest. And you also have the fact that sound travels more quickly through warmer air than it does through cooler air. And that's because molecules in warmer air tend to be more excited and they're moving around much faster. So a sound wave can travel through much easier because you've already got particles in motion. So yeah, so sound travels uh, faster through warmer air. So just to put things into a bit of perspective, if we look back at our home planet, At zero degrees Celsius, the speed of sound is 331 meters per second. At 20 degrees Celsius, it's 343 meters per second. But at 40 degrees Celsius, it's 355 meters per second. So this is a measurable effect. So um, it just shows you that there's quite a substantial difference in speeds. And it, it actually happens during the day, so early in the morning when it's really cold you know sound is going to travel a bit slower than it will do at lunchtime when it's much warmer wow. so so
0: if you're living in antarctica the sound is traveling slower than if you're living in rio de janeiro yeah so that's true. over i'd get well of course i'm guessing it's completely unnoticeable. Because yeah, it is...
1: you're not going to really notice it that much, but I suppose you probably, if you know, if anyone's interested is uh, to do a test, you know, shout at someone at <laughs> yes. the house of the morning and then That's... shout at him at lunchtime and see, you know, uh, whether they it. get do your you... message earlier, you know. <laughs> like...
0: Do you feel like your conversations drag on longer in the winter? Maybe
1: <laughs> it's because the summery. speed of
0: sound is a lot slower.
1: <laughs> there we go. We've just solved the world's problems there, Jake, you know. Our job here is done. We yeah, can, if
0: you feel can... like a conversation is dragging on, maybe turn up the heating a little bit.
1: <laughs> Profound Speed <advice>. things up.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, speaking of things that are dragging on, um, Mars is a very, very cold planet. Um, so already we know the atmospheric composition is different. But Mars is cold. And when I say it's cold, I really, really mean it's cold because the average surface temperature on Mars is minus 63 degrees celsius
0: that's pretty chilly
1: it's chilly although as i keep telling everyone you know on a lovely summer's day on mars if you happen to be on the equator the daytime temperature can get to about 20 degrees celsius that's actually not so bad
0: that's not so bad that's i think that's something we can work with
1: yeah i mean just don't ignore the fact that you know at night time it'll be below minus 100 that's just a minor point but daytime you know 20 degrees celsius there you go just think of the positive side don't you know let's not do negatives here um so you know you've got these really cold temperatures you've got an atmospheric composition that's different and in addition to that the atmosphere on mars is thin it's really 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 thin okay now Again, to understand just how thin it is, we can look at the air pressure on the surface. So again, using our wonderful home planet as reference, the air pressure or surface air pressure on the Earth is 1,013 millibars, uh, whereas on Mars, the surface air pressure is six and a half millibars. Now, if you're like, what does this all mean? I can give you a wonderful example. To reach the same surface air pressure on Mars here on the Earth, you'd have to get to an altitude of 45 kilometers above the surface of the earth. So at okay, 45 right. kilometers above the surface of the earth, then you'll have an air pressure equivalent to the surface air pressure on Mars. Now, if that doesn't sound all that high, bear in mind that an airplane typically flies at around 10 kilometers above the surface of the earth. Okay. Wow. And those famous jumps from space, you know, Felix Baumgartner and that, that was all done below 45 kilometers. So, if those jumps terrified you, you now have a good idea of just how thin the atmosphere is on Mars. It is, it is really, really thin.
0: Yeah. So, you're not getting by on Mars without a pressure suit. And that is the takeaway.
1: The takeaway from this is you will need to wear space suit all the time if you're on the surface of Mars. Otherwise, many delightful things will await you. Uh, there are a number of ways in which Mars can kill you, but that can be the focus of another podcast perhaps one day. Um, so yes, Mars is very different. So you can imagine just based on that, that sound is going to move differently. It's going to move slow there on Mars. And so we knew that that was going to be the case, but we just didn't have official proof or, you know, evidence that this was the case. So this is the first time it has been confirmed scientifically that the speed of sound is slower on Mars. But what we were not expecting is that the speed of sound on Mars varies with the pitch or the frequency of the sound. So based on the data collected, the scientists found that low pitched sounds travel at about 240 meters per second whereas high-pitched sounds travel at 250 meters per second, okay? So just keep that in mind for now. So you've got low-pitched sounds traveling at one speed, high-pitched sounds traveling at another. They also saw, as expected, that sound on Mars only travels for a relatively short distance before it drops out. So again, here, if we come back to our reference point, the Earth, sound typically drops off at about 65 meters, On Mars, it drops off about eight meters. So that's a very, very short distance that sound can actually travel. And what they found is that high-pitched sounds just stop completely at that point, whereas low-pitched might go on just a little bit beyond the eight-meter point. So now, what does this all mean in the grand scheme of things, Jake? Well, basically what it means is if you and I Happened to be astronauts on the surface of Mars, and we we're kitted out in our spacesuits, and we were talking to each other, but we didn't have microphones. So we were just, you know, standing next to each other, speaking to, you know, each other. It would be fine at first, it would be okay, but there would be this weird thing where we would hear higher pitched sounds arrive slightly earlier. Now, it wouldn't be too noticeable the closer we are to each other. However, If we're about five meters away from each other, that's when it's going to start causing problems. Now, to understand what you could expect with this is imagine we somehow took an orchestra along with us to Mars as well. And they were set up on the surface and they were playing. Now, here on the Earth, with an orchestra, it doesn't matter if you're seated at the front or the back of the hall, you hear all the sounds arriving at the same time. On Mars, you would hear that the further away you were from the orchestra, there would be a much bigger delay between hearing the high and low pitched tones, which would make for a very weird experience. All their hard work playing in harmony would just be thwarted really by the Martian atmosphere.
0: So you're hearing the flutes first and you're hearing the trombones last.
1: Pretty, pretty much, yet they're playing at the same time
0: and you can't get any further than eight meters away from them yeah
1: yeah that's
0: that'd be a very strange and very intimate concert that'd be yeah that'd be very it would different. be very weird
1: I, yeah and it you'd all have to be huddled around them to be able to hear everything coming at the same time so yeah mars is mars is weird very very weird weird and is
0: the right word for it definitely
1: but again something else they picked up which on the one hand it's not entirely unexpected mars is an eerily quiet planet so quiet in fact that the scientists actually thought the microphones on perseverance had failed to operate because they couldn't hear a thing so they were sort of (laughs) sitting there like we can't hear anything and that's because mars is eerily quiet so when they started to hear sounds of winds and the movement of the mechanical arms and stuff like that they were like, they were relieved they're like okay thank goodness it is working but as for the planet itself if it's very calm and there are no winds blowing you cannot hear anything happening on that planet which is kind of creepy but at the same yeah. time fascinating
0: Well, yeah it's interesting listening listening to the winds of mars audio and playing it on the podcast a couple of months ago you do notice that you hear a gust of wind and then just absolute silence and that's that's
1: exactly what they're saying is that if if it's if they know that the rover's not doing anything and you just record unless there are gusts of winds you hear nothing so yeah so eerie but fascinating at the same time But yeah, Mars just keeps throwing up all sorts of, you know, interesting things. So there we have it. We finally have a measurement for the speed of sound on Mars, or should I say the speeds of sound. And yeah, now you know that Mars is eerily quiet too. So if you were slightly petrified about going to that planet one day, you might now be really, really petrified about going there to absolute silence.
0: Yeah. That is, it's very bizarre, especially the different pitches traveling at different speeds. What I'd really like to hear now is someone to put together an orchestra piece or put together a symphony with oh. those different uh, factors in play.
1: Oh, I like that idea. Sort of get, you know, maybe, oh, maybe they could do that. That would be really awesome if they could do that is, yeah, is be able to play this and sort of just record it or, or if maybe on a future mission or something like the Mars sample return is, is to do precisely that is maybe have curiosity, transmit these sounds or something or perseverance for sample return, and then have the lander just record it. That would be fascinating, but also slightly weird to hear the sound sort of coming in at those different times, but yeah. Right, write to NASA, Jake. Put it in. Put it in as a request. That's
0: it. What we would like is among the first humans ever sent to Mars. We would like a full symphony orchestra, <laughs> and just a few of our favourite musicians as well. Maybe a few that would uh, be very suitable. Uh, someone like Elton John. Finally, but make him into a rocket man. Uh, I'm sure oh, there's various like others that. that I can't think of that are far better. Uh, what's it,
1: is it? not 30 Seconds to Mars? Is that, is that another oh, that,
0: yeah. <laughs> Okay. We'll send <laughs> Richard, Jared Leto up to Mars. Yeah.
1: Although he, it's going to take about nine months to get this. So they may have to change the band's name. Just, just a suggestion. That's
0: true. Minor details. Minor it's details. Minor,
1: minor details. So join us in next month's podcast, we will have figured out any musician who has either sung about Mars or has Mars in their name. Oh, Bruno Mars. There we go. Bruno
0: Mars. There we go. This is a very strange lineup. We've got Elton John, (laughs) Bruno Mars and uh, Jared Leto heading to Mars.
1: Yeah. And a symphony orchestra. (laughs) Yeah. Don't worry about the science, NASA, We we just want to send musicians to Mars and 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 there we have it we're podcast taking a very strange turn as it normally does and that's why we enjoy recording our our podcast because we do take wild tangents at some points but
0: yeah that is a it. very good story i really like just how weird weird and wonderful that is as a as a concept
1: yeah, it, it is very difficult to wrap your mind around something like that. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe within the next month or two months, someone will probably have created some sort of web demo where you could hear what it would be like so that you could sort of place yourself like right up close to sound and then move further away, for example. I know, um, and I don't know if you, I mean, you may have played this, but I think NASA also made... the really interesting things was like how does a bicycle bell sound on Mars and something so they have like this is what it sounds like on the earth but this is what it would sound like on Mars but now I'm wondering if they're gonna have to correct that for Mm. that distance that you are away from that sound as well because yeah it will drop off after eight meters so there you go the weird and wacky Mars weird and wacky and that brings us to the end of this month's cosmic news part of our podcast so two great stories again for this month to choose from which means we are fully engaged in our twitter battle and the poll will be live at the beginning of the month so please do vote for your favorite stories on our twitter poll and it's Again, as always, if you have any ideas or stories that you'd like us to talk about, or if there's a burning question in astronomy or space exploration, why not send a message to us and we can explore it in our next podcast. But I think with that, Jake, we'll have to wrap this month's podcast up.
0: That's it. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time around. And as always, keep looking up.